On this week's 51%, she's president of EMILY's List and helps Democratic women get elected. She says interest among these candidates, especially black and brown women, is keen. This is not a moment. This is it. This is a sea change. And I think it is going to be fantastic for our democracy and our government. Hear from Stephanie Shriok about running to win. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Let's love ourselves and we can fail to make a better situation. Emily's List, the largest national resource for women in politics, was created by Ellen Malcolm in 1985 to fund campaigns for pro-choice Democratic women and strategically torchlight the balance of power in government. The name Emily's List was an acronym for Early Money is Like Yeast. That is, it makes the dough rise. Stephanie Shriok became president of Emily's List in 2010. She's overseen more than a decade of growth in the organization, raising hundreds of millions of dollars, helping elect record numbers of women to the U.S. House and Senate, and recruiting and training hundreds more. Her recently released book, Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World, is for women who are looking to lead. The book is organized around the steps Emily's List uses to coach its candidates, from deciding to run through celebrating victory. The book contains lessons for any woman trying to succeed in a male-dominated field. And while the arena here is politics, the message is universal. 51%'s Joe Donahue spoke with Shriok just before Kamala Harris, who wrote the book's forward, was inaugurated as vice president. What brought you to this particular topic as far as wanting to write a book about it? Obviously, it is what you live every day in what you do and in the mission of Emily's List. So what was the idea in putting it all in book form? Well, after the 2016 election, uh, which, as you can imagine, for an organization that is committed to electing pro-choice Democratic women, Emily's List was pretty down and out at that moment. And and we uh, we were really scared that women weren't going to step up and run anymore after Hillary Clinton's loss. And not only were we wrong, we were completely wrong. And we began to see this just surge of women coming to us wanting to run. Uh, Maybe they didn't know what for, I will say, but they wanted to run, and we've had now over 60,000. And so the, the thought about this book, as Christine and I were talking about it, is to start giving some just very tactical information on how to get started. You know, if you can't get to a training or you can't get connected uh, to something, here's some tactical uh, information for you as you think about running for office or really making any kind of change in your community or in your workplace. Uh, And we wanted to share the stories of these truly extraordinary women who were running, uh, particularly as you look at the class of 2018 and those um, that historic class in the House of Representatives who delivered the Democratic majority. So that's really the beginnings of this uh, book, and we're just thrilled that it's uh, come together so well. So the forward is written by Senator Kamala Harris. Give us a sense of, of her story and how just that story kind of makes your case. 
Uh, yeah, you know, the thing about Emily's List, uh, which has been around now for over 35 years, I've had the honor of being uh, her president for uh, 11 of those years, is that we, we stick with people. And Kamala Harris is a perfect example of that. We were supportive of her in her DA race in San Francisco years ago, and then uh, were actively engaged and endorsed her in her attorney general race of California. Uh, and her reelection. And then I personally talked to her about whether or not she should run for that Senate seat when it became open uh, in uh, 2016. And I'm, I'm so glad she she did. Uh, and so it's, it's a good example. And she is a good example, one of just how we at Emily's List work with women intentionally to continue them along their careers. Uh, and provide any kind of services uh, they need. And sometimes that's money, which is our our founding purpose, is to provide financial resources. But a lot of times it's just a shoulder to, to cry on if you need to, or some coaching, some training, uh, just being part of a community that is really committed to changing who's sitting at the governing tables. And that's who we are. And uh, and I, it's been one of the biggest blessings of my life. So given that now Kamala Harris will be sitting in that, at that table and will will have the second highest office in the land, does, does that profoundly change, not change the work that you do, but give you yet another great talking point? I think it is so hard to be what you you've never seen before and so for little girls and i would even argue uh little boys to see a woman particularly a woman of color serving as the vice president of the united states of america will will break through and and have that imagination of opportunity and possibility and i think that's huge i think that that is so so important uh, and so just seeing that. The other thing is I, I think it will do for all of us adults in the world who are, set, who are set in our ways and some who aren't so sure yet about what women's executive leadership is because they've not seen it uh, in their lives, will now have an example of what, um, what that looks like. And uh, sure, it may look a little different. Uh, it's and I'm not saying it's better, it's not worse, it's just a different perspective and a different way of doing things. And that's what we need. We need diversity mm. of ideas and perspectives and of leadership across the board. You touched on this earlier, and it's a point that you make in the book, that the hardest part of your work has always been convincing women to run. There, there is, and and again, this is this is for both men and women. But looking at the current, whatever this is, um, <laughs> situation that we're in, you you do wonder where the sanity is of anyone who steps up and says, "Oh yeah, I want to be a part of that." Well, I look at it differently, which is thank God people are willing to do that, right? You know, there's, there are so many who, who aren't, and I would argue that the women that we see stepping up for the first time uh, who have never pondered running for office before, hadn't even crossed their mind, 
are getting in now because they truly believe that work needs to be done to protect and advance their communities. You know, and, and that is about service. And it's really at its core about service of their communities and their neighbors. And I, I think, you know, and I say this at Emily's List all the time, I think one of the most courageous things you can do in a democracy mm-hmm. is to put your name on the ballot, right. particularly in a divisive moment like we're in today. And it's for the rest of us to back up those brave folks, women and men, who are willing to do this uh, because we need them and we need good people to run. Let me let me talk about that uh, with you for a moment. How do we back them up? What is our role in this in in backing up these women who I agree are just so courageous to say, OK, count me and I want to do something? Yeah, and I think this is really, really important. And it's something that as as citizens, we all have a role in and we need to start taking it more seriously. Uh, particularly for women candidates and women elected officials, where we know there are more obstacles, that they are seen differently, they are judged much more uh, harshly than their male counterparts. And so there's lots of little things we can do. We can, you know, one, we can make sure we're registered and vote. (laughs) Just start basics, register and vote. But we can also make financial contributions, even if it's $5, you know, skip that uh, fancy cup of coffee and then give it to a local city council member who's running for re-election. You can volunteer to help. Uh, And I promise you, as, as you get more and more involved, you start building your own community. And honestly, it's pretty fun. Like, I've been doing this for a career, but I started off as volunteering uh, in, even in back in high school, and you meet the most amazing people. Politics is just simply about people, and we can't lose that, that fact. Like, it's just the reality, and if we keep people at the center of this and you start building that community around you and around those elected officials, uh, we're all going to be better off because that's what we're missing right now is community. We got to build out the community. We are talking to Stephanie Shriak. She is the author of the new book, Run to Win Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. Let us spend a moment or two on, because you do in the book, of of talking about some of the obstacles that these women face in running for office. Um so how much of this is known, meaning you have you have many, many years of of examples of, oh, OK, you're coming up against this. And how much of it like with each election cycle is something? Oh, wow. Now we have to deal with that, too. It, that's a fair point. And I'd say the the biggest well, here's the good news. Let me start off with the good news is that more and more of our citizens and the establishment and the party structures are open to women running for office. Uh, they still have to, a lot of women, and that's what Emily's List does, is we've got to get them through primaries in a lot of cases. It's amazing mm-hmm. how few primaries are cleared out for women candidates, particularly women of color. So we still have work to do on that front. Uh, but there are... Um, 
you know, there are just so many more people willing to see women in office. So that is good. That's the good news. And diverse women, which is really, really important. But you're right. Something, something new comes up all the time. And, and one of the things that's really uh, become clearer and clearer is with the complete expansion of social media on all its platforms. I mean, we have, we have seen the damage uh, when used negatively, uh, right, with the insurgency that happened on the United States uh, Capitol, uh, the, the power of social media to spread disinformation has also meant particularly for women candidates uh, a whole new way to uh, negatively attack uh, their character, their gender, their their you know their person versus attacking their positions, and that is something that we are very mindful of and and have really expanded our work in. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to stop it unless the the big companies start doing something, and maybe that's what we're seeing right now. Right. Uh, but but we at least need to be aware. And we need to do some counter-programming about who the women are and what what uh, they stand for, and and that's that's just it's just like another layer to it. It can be done, and so I don't want to discourage anybody uh, from from running. This is all manageable, but we talk about it in in the in our book, Run to Win. Christina and I is you got you're going to grow a thick skin in this process because uh, things are going to be said, and you you just got to kind of let it roll off of you and stay focused on the why you're doing it, which is to make change in your community. I want to focus in on my congressional um, district that I live in because I I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the 21st congressional district in New York. You supported a candidate and worked with a candidate by the name of Tedra Cobb, who was the Democrat who ran against Elise Stefanik, a Republican. Elise Stefanik has again won and was one of the people who stood up on the House floor after the after the riot and mob um, infiltrated the Capitol and said that the vote should be overturned. So my question is, what is what is the dynamic when it is women running against women and and the case and the and the obstacles that need to be made to try to appeal to the women of the, that district that their interests are not being met? Well, once you get into a general election, uh, which which was the case, of obviously, with the Tedra and Elise, and we proudly supported uh, Tedra, Tedra Carb in that race, uh, once you get into a general election, you are in such a partisan environment uh, that 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 comes first uh and then everything else including gender which is a factor um unfortunately i'm i'm looking forward to the day where it's not <laughs> then i won't have to worry about it anymore but gender becomes a factor we got two women running uh against each other as as you did uh in in the 21st uh you almost have a situation where you get to just have a debate about about uh, hopefully the policies that are going to be best for for the uh, community. But you've got a district up there that's 
a fairly conservative-minded district with a lot of Republicans in it. And so it's a, a hard one for a Democrat of either gender, frankly, to, um, to win right now. And we, we thought we took, had a good run at it and just didn't make it with a really good candidate. Uh, so that that's, you know, some of this, and we talk about this in the book, is you mm-hmm. know, we, we live in a country where there are lines around districts. And those districts are are designed in Democratic-controlled uh, states and Republican-controlled states, often by the legislatures, and and they're designed in specific ways to get specific results. Uh, and that's just something you've got to look at before you step in and run. Sometimes you can get the opposite party voters to vote for you, at least enough of them. Sometimes you can't. And that's that's the hard part in states. I grew up in Montana. Mm-hmm. You got a ten point Republican advantage all the time in Montana. So you've got to think about: Can I pull enough Republicans over? You know, my former boss John Tester uh, is successful in in doing that, or has been successful. But in 2020, the Democrats weren't. It just um, the environment does control a lot of this too. At the start of our conversation, you were talking about what happened in 2016 of, of this influx of women coming to you and saying, OK, I, I want in. I want to be a part of this. Have you seen a sustain, seeing that sustained and even into the past two election cycles? And, and what do you do with those numbers moving forward to keep it at that level? Oh, it just keeps growing. I mean, I keep thinking it's going to slow down. <laughs> it's not. And I'm, I'm super excited and also like, oh, my gosh, we've got so many women running. Now they're running against each other all the time. And we're like, wow. I, you know, I, when I started 11 years ago, I don't know if I had a single race that had more than one woman in a, in a primary, let's just say, uh, on the Democratic side. Now, now they're just like half of them have two or three women <laughs> in these races and we got to figure out that dynamic that's okay that that's a good sign of success that women have have felt the power and and know that their voice matters i think that is huge and so i'll tell you right now we've got a great recruitment cycle going on right now for 22 after 20 and for democratic women we lost a lot of uh, races in 2020 i mean we won a bunch in 2018 we lost a bunch in in 2020 uh, a lot of those women are going to come back and run again uh, some are going to go run for other offices some are going to step out and help somebody else run but we continue to see this interest grow and particularly among women of color where we truly need to change um, intentionally the number of black and brown women serving in office across this country. But it's not slowing down. This is not a moment. This is it. This is a sea change. And I think it is going to be fantastic for our democracy and our governments, all of them. Given that we are just uh, sev- several weeks beyond uh, Election Day 2020, what's the information, what's the data that you have collected in, in just the last few weeks that that you say, okay, this this is something to consider as we move forward? What did you learn from that exercise of democracy? In, this, in the last few weeks? Yes. Well, in, uh, yes, in the election and, and 
and what <laughs> and what and what has happened from everything from from everything I from know, oh you know from the, the the from election night to who won to who lost to yes of course the 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 presidential contest and ultimately to Georgia and now as you look to move forward well what the, one of the things that we do at Emily's list because we we recruit way in advance so we've already been recruiting candidates so we've got We've got a lot of responsibility in the Senate, in the House, and in legislatures in particular, because keep in mind, we're in a redistricting cycle right now. Right. Uh, once, once the census, it's a whole nother, we could hold, do a whole, whole nother segment That's on the right. census. That's right. Absolutely. At some point, the census will be completed. At some point, there will be an, a reapportionment of the districts, and then there will be drawing of lines. I cannot tell you today when that will be, but that will happen. And then we'll have all these other opportunities. But what we want to figure out from this, particularly this last election, uh, the honest to God truth is we went in as Democrats, uh, believing that the the Democratic candidates, and that was a lot of women, particularly in the House, were going to pick up a lot of seats. And in fact, the opposite happened. We lost a little bit of ground uh, in the House chamber. Um, thankfully, we gained the majority, though our, our, our women in the Senate races did not pull it off in, um, on Election Day. So what what happened and what we're looking at there is a couple things one uh polling was just really off again mm. uh and every time trump is on the ballot so cuz polling was not off in 18 interestingly at all uh but the, when trump's on the ballot the polling's way off and so we got to figure out that piece and so we're doing a lot of analysis uh both with political folks and with academic folks to understand that piece of things uh we also need to uh think through sort of the communities we're working with and the communities we aren't and to figure out how to get back into some of these communities where they they just don't see democrats as a solution or democratic women as a solution uh that's that's some of the work we need to do. So I, I think about Iowa a lot because I've got a I've got a lot of family in Iowa. Uh, we Emily's list had a great Senate candidate in Teresa Greenfield. Uh, three women running for Congress. Only one of them won her reelection. Uh, we thought we were going to get the state legislature. That did not happen. Uh, despite the fact that polling looking like it was going to all go our direction on the election day. So we got to really look at that and we're, we'll go in deep and figure, you know, try to figure this out because there's got to be work to be done, uh, particularly in those Midwestern Upper Plains states. That was president of Emily's List, Stephanie Shriok, speaking with 51%'s Joe Donahue. Her book is Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. The book is co-authored by Christina Reynolds. It's been several weeks since President Biden signed an executive order allowing transgender people to serve in America's armed forces. And although some would-be recruits have been waiting years for the opportunity, they're not being fitted with camouflage uniforms just yet. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Drew Garza, a 20-year-old from Corpus Christi, Texas, put his military ambitions on ice in 2017. He'd come out as trans early in high school. At age 16, he was already preparing to enlist by working out and taking practice versions of the military's aptitude test. Then President Trump banned new transgender recruits. 
you know, I wanted to speak to a recruiter around 16, 17. And that's when the, uh, the tweets came out and then the band came out. And so everything kind of just went like, okay, it's not going to work out, at least not right now. It was a big blow. Garza comes from a long line of service members, so joining up felt like a rite of passage and a way of embracing his new identity. So even as he began hormone treatments and had surgery, he became a plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging the ban. But as it made its way through the courts, Garza had no choice but to wait. And ever since then, I've kind of just been not putting my life on hold, but I haven't really started anything that would be um, like, this is the path I'm going down. He got a job in IT, practiced his pull-ups, and mostly kept to himself. But things shifted when President Biden lifted the ban in late January. And then, I, I kid you not, I had an Army recruiter message me, and then a Marine recruiter followed, and then just yesterday an Air Force recruiter contacted me, and I was like, yes. <laughs> I take it to mean, like, now I'm being seen. Despite political controversy over whether transgender troops affect the readiness of the service, the recruiters who contacted Garza were eager to bring him in. Garza's thrilled to have options, but he and many other transgender young people still await the Defense Department's formal policy, which will lay out the requirements and rules for their service. What we're really telling people is, get ready. That's Bree Fram, an Air Force aeronautical engineer and head of the military transgender organization Sparta. She's telling would-be enlistees to hold off from going to recruiting stations because there's still no way to process them in. But as soon as the policy actually comes out, you need to read it, understand it, and you're probably going to have to help educate your recruiter on it because it's going to be new to them as well. Fram says she expects the Pentagon to come out with a new policy in fairly short order. She thinks it will borrow heavily from the rules that were in place under the Obama administration. However the policy comes down, Sparta says its priorities will remain the same. The organization wants to reduce the bureaucratic burden on transgender troops, push for equal medical treatment, and make sure transgender people are treated the same way across the services. And if we can get people in the door, start utilizing their talents, and then evolve the policy over time, uh, long term, I think we're going to have more of a positive impact. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a memo that he'll consult with senior civilian and military leaders over 60 days in order to develop policies in keeping with President Biden's order. For now, the military branches are trying to work with the uncertainty. Sergeant Major of the Army Michael Grinston was asked about transgender service in a town hall last month. He said until more guidance comes down, the Army will operate under the Trump administration policy. It does take us some time to review the policy. I mean, we had a policy in 2016 that changed. Uh, there was another executive order that was signed by the president at the time, and then we made a change. And whatever policy we have, that is still in effect. But that doesn't mean we're not going to look at it. After the Obama administration first announced that openly trans people could serve and be recruited, it took about 18 months for the policy to fully take effect. And when former President Trump later tried to ban trans recruits, there was a lag of more than 18 months between when he signed the order and when the policy began. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1648.